Yes, yes, yo, everybody, you all are welcome to the Mind School Podcast with Christopher J, your teacher. My shout out goes to your scholars out there who keeps coming and tuning to the show from every listening platform all over the globe. Another shout out goes to you all for the love you show when you share and tag our shows on your social media handles. I must confess, you are the realest MVP. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The job of a therapist is to do a deep dive into patients' past traumas, unconscious conflicts, and family history in order to understand their current beliefs, feelings, and behaviors that may block them in their current life. Clinical psychologist Dr. Romani expertly does this every day in her private practice. Grace Smith accesses this subconscious part of a patient through a very different door. As a certified hypnotherapist through the International Association of Counselors and Therapists, Grace has changed lives by treating anxiety, smoking cessation, chronic pain, and more. In this series, they discuss how to fix subconscious blocks to overcome mental health issues. Welcome, and thank you for being here, My Dr. Pleasure, Romani. My pleasure, thank you. And welcome back, Grace Smith. Thanks for having certified me. Certified hypnotherapist. I want you to start by telling us this great story about Alex. Absolutely. So it was very early on in my career as a hypnotherapist. In fact, I was still only doing it part-time. I still had a career in corporate America. And at that point, I'd been helping people with some more superficial seeming issues, things like nail biting or overcoming fear of flying, things that weren't necessarily debilitating all day long in every way. And then I got a call to help this man named Alex. And he had been a United Nations peacekeeping officer in Syria, one of the Blue Berets. So this man was a warrior. He was hand chosen by the government of Brazil to represent his nation in Syria, mm. one of the most dangerous places in the world. So one day his United Nations convoy is crossing the city of Damascus and is stopped at an unchartered blockade. And he looks outside his window and there's a bazooka pointed straight at him. And in that moment, he just, his last thought was, this is it, it's over. He blacked out, woke up 10 days later at a hospital in Lebanon to find that he had not lost his life, but he had lost his life as he had known it. He was now paralyzed on the left-hand side of his body. And so in that moment, he had suffered a stress-induced stroke, and now this warrior cut down in his prime couldn't move a muscle. So after four months of every type of specialist attempting to help him. He was flown to the Rusk Institute in New York City where I was working. And it was there that I was asked if I would be able to help him with his now debilitating depression. Again, I hadn't worked something to this magnitude yet. And my honest answer was, I have no idea if I can help him, but truly what do we have to lose? So I remember going into the Rusk Institute. It was very intimidating for me being so new at this white coats, surgeons, fluorescent lighting, this man with suicidal ideation, again, cut down in his prime. And I remember looking at him lying in his hospital bed and my saying, Alex, this is going to be unlike any therapy you've experienced thus far. You're going to close your eyes. I'm going to help you relax. It's going to feel like you're in a meditative state and we're going to have a conversation. 
and we'll see if we can help alleviate some of this depression. So halfway through the session, I get this thought in my head, Grace, he's military, be militant. Mm. Now I call hypnosis meditation with a goal and you'd never think to be militant in meditation. So it really felt like divine inspiration to some extent. This was not part of my training, but I said, okay, he's military, be militant. And I became more forceful and I said, Alex, I want you to begin to imagine you're flying over a city at night. You're in a helicopter. You can see a topographical map of your brain and that's what you're flying over. You can see where the lights are on, where the electricity is working, and you can see where there's a blackout, where the electricity has stopped working. Fly to where there's the blackout and let me know when you're there. And he did. And I said, when I count down from three to one and snap my fingers, there's going to be an explosion where that blackout once was. Three, two, one. And he flinched. And I said, now that electricity travels down the left-hand side of your face, travels through your left arm, travels through your left hand, and travels out your left finger. And I hadn't even finished the word. And he was moving his left finger. So his eyes shoot open and he looks at me and he says, what do I do now? And I just look at him and I start crying hysterically. He said, just keep moving your finger. (laughs) That's it. had this much range of motion when he had once been paralyzed. And that was the day I put in my two weeks notice in corporate America. And I said, people are suffering needlessly. This man went from being paralyzed to having mobility in his left hand because he visualized moving in his mind from the theta state. And of course, the very best part of that story is I ended up marrying Alex's son. (laughs) That's how I met who would become my father-in-law. Fantastic. As a clinical psychologist, Mm -hmm. Dr. Romney, how do you respond to that? You know, so it's what's so interesting is knowing that, you know, when Grace is a hypnotherapist is that that's obviously not a form of therapy clinical psychologists would traditionally be trained in. If they chose to get that training afterwards, they would. But to that story, there's a couple of responses I have is that one is the, I don't know, maybe the I want to say cynical part of my mind, but the the part of my mind that was trained as it, with a wider lens, that just out of the hip, hypnosis space, is that she you created tremendous trust mm-hmm. and rapport with this individual, mm-hmm. and in that space of safety, yeah. things were made possible, mm-hmm. and then pulled on other very very important techniques, which I think we should be building into therapy more. Back when I got trained, we didn't do this, which was the use of meditation and staying in the moment. So that, that, that use of that technique is something I think all therapists should be doing, which is in that moment, using sensate focus, having people focus on whatever it is they do, literally doing that work in the moment, in the, in the therapeutic room. It shows the potency of that. And so I think that, you know, obviously it's like, that's a very specific space, but I think that it is, there's the techniques we all use as therapists, but most of all, it's the rapport in the safe space. Grace, how did you become a certified hypnotherapist? Absolutely. So I used hypnotherapy to quit smoking. Mm -hmm. I was very young Mm -hmm. and had recently gotten sober. And six months into my sobriety was still chain smoking cigarettes, 24 years old, living in the Lower East Side with a very stressful corporate job. Someone recommended hypnosis. I went in with my arms crossed. (laughs) 
totally resistant, not thinking it would work, but truly I was at my wit's end. And that's how most people come to hypnotherapy still. It is still viewed as a last resort. And then I used it to overcome a debilitating fear of public speaking. And when I saw this track record with two totally unrelated things in my life that had been causing so much unnecessary pain, not to mention how costly the smoking was mm -hmm. and, and really truly how much the fear of public speaking was costing me in my career advancement. I just said, I have to understand more of what this is. Why is it so powerful? Why is it non-invasive? Why do people think it's clucking chickens and swinging watches when actually it's fascinating and I feel amazing when it's over, but most importantly, it's effective. So that's when I went and got the certification. To be perfectly honest, hypnotherapy is wonderfully powerful, but it is not yet regulated. And the education is not where it needs to be yes. at all. And that's, the, that's what I was reacting to, is that there's yes. a lot of people out there who are touting it. I don't know what it is they're doing, but they're also not always informed as to other things like around psychodiagnosis and other comorbid conditions. Mm -hmm. Then they may end up steering back into a traditional therapist's office, and you know, and that could happen with anybody, like you right. know, in any unregulated discipline. Yes. But in the same breath, if you look at the empirical research. The research on hypnotherapy and smoking is incontrovertible, and that's the recommendation I will always make to a client yes. who's struggling with quitting smoking, hypnotherapy first. Really? Yes, because it's where the evidence, see, I'm an evidence-based kind of guy. Yes, yeah. I you know. know. You know that about know. me. So if from that place of like, there's, it's a no-brainer. Like this is non-invasive. They're not putting more you know, nicotine and stuff in their body with gums and all that. They can actually, and it's, it works. Mm -hmm. I mean, and there's a good research base for that. But even you know, to, to your point, Grace, which is so interesting, you say, you know, we think of hypnotherapy, we think of like, you know, uh, watches going back and forth yeah. and all that. Let's go back to the very beginning, like him or not, you know, Freud was, you know, Freud changed this field. He made this field, whether we, we want to own that or not. It's like two people in a room and something happens. But what was he doing? He was putting, people were getting into such a relaxed state mm -hmm. that they started to talk. Mm. And so when you think of where Freud's practice began, sort of the release of what we, you know, what we, we call more somatic conditions, but he used to call it hysteria. People who would claim they no longer, they were paralyzed in their foot or they were frozen or they were hysterically blind. They weren't blind, they oh. could see. And when you look at Freud's early writings and all of his early case studies, it was this the relaxation this, the client was put in, talk, 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 and then the release. And I'm still convinced it wasn't the early childhood work they were doing, the early conflicts. It was the relaxation, talk, talk, talk. Mm -hmm. And that's what was releasing the symptomatology. What I'm hearing is that the advent of what we now know as therapy Started. and psychology had influence of what we now know as hypnotherapy. A thousand, I'm sorry, a year, hundred years ago. Hundred, hundred years. years ago. Yeah. That's really where it all began because he, Freud's mentor was a guy named Charcot. And Charcot, and, and even before Charcot, was a guy named Mesmer, where mm -hmm. mesmerized, it came Mesmer from that name, yeah. that Mesmer and Charcot were hypnotherapists therapists. Wow. Yes. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, that was his original training. Mm -hmm. So how does hypnotherapy work? Just as Dr. Romani said, it is powerful because you are deeply relaxed. Mm -hmm. So here's what happens. Most people attempt to change their life, to develop new habits when they're already in survival mode, mm -hmm. when they're in fight, flight, freeze, stressed out, 
mode. That is when you are the least adaptable. That is when you are the least open to change. That is when you are the least open to hearing new information. So if we were to put sensors on our heads right now, we would be producing what's known as beta waves. So they're pretty fast, they're spiky, they're close together. That's normal waking consciousness. If we were to stop talking and just sort of look out the window for a little bit, start daydreaming, that would be alpha. That's a little bit smoother, slower. That's the light bulb moment in the shower. Way down here is delta. Delta, you're not conscious, right? But your subconscious is very active because that's sleep. Now, hypnotherapy and deep meditation both take place at what's known as the theta brainwave state. Theta is deeper than alpha, deeper than daydreaming, but more alert and more conscious than sleep. So people mistake hypnotherapy for sleep. It doesn't help that stage hypnotists scream sleep at people. Mm -hmm. All they're doing is telling you to close your eyes. Mm but you are in this unbelievably deeply relaxed place. And what we have found from the research that thus far is that you are open to suggestion when you feel that safe and relaxed, but also you have the surplus energy required to create new neurological links in the brain much faster than when you're in survival mode and totally depleted of any surplus energy. And so that's why we can see transformation so rapidly. So when we're able to access that subconscious part of our brain, I understand how we can make changes. From a mental health perspective, mm -hmm. what types of mental health disorders could we target when we really target the subconscious part of our brain? I'm, one would argue, in theoretically, any. Any. Okay. I mean, there's nothing we couldn't address uh -huh. in that, right? Because, again, a riff back on Freud, if so much of mental health issues are a byproduct of unresolved stuff, I'm not even gonna call, call it conflict, but unresolved stuff, a subconscious state then would allow a person to go into that stuff. Look at, look at some of the practices you have now around trauma therapy, which I know we've had med circle series oh, yeah. on things like EMDR and things like that. EMDR, once again, is really about getting a person into a place where they can look at that, that early stuff, like br bringing it up, you know, t getting the person to go there and then doing an intervention around that. Now, listen, if I was sitting, if you had in my chair right now a radical behaviorist, they would be poo-pooing both of us, both Grace and I, mm -hmm. saying that this historical stuff really doesn't matter. It's all, I, I, I could, you know this, in fact, you know this better than we do, mm. having worked with animals. Mm. You could shape any behavior in a living creature mm -hmm. through the reinforcements you give them at that time. Mm -hmm. And that's what a behaviorist would argue, and they would say, I don't see that the, they see no function of a subconscious, that mm -hmm. they're like, it's conscious reaction to reward and, um, and then how a person learns a new, and shapes a new behavior. But other than that, I think most of us would agree that there is something that is not addressed, that is uncomfortable, that is being pushed away, that is often, it's the backdrop, it's the context, it's the thing that is, that is often explaining a lot of this way. So traditionally in therapy, what do we do? We help, we listen to a person's story really deeply and we help them draw connections. It's so interesting, you choose women who da 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 da, mm -hmm. when you just told me your mother da 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 da, <laughs> mm -hmm. and they'll say, I never thought of that. Right. You know why? Because it's their story. It's harder for them to parse it, parse it away. So uh, to short answer your question, I would say any. Now, when we talk about hypnotherapy or in mental health, which I guess now may be one and the same thing. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, we talk about limiting beliefs. Mm -hmm. I want to start with Dr. Ramani. Mm -hmm. What is a limiting belief? So a limiting belief is a, a, a thought that a person holds about themselves or about the world that restricts their range of behavior. This is the most 
obvious limiting belief, and most of us have, is I can't do that. Mm -hmm. Okay, I can't cook dinner. I can't ride a bike 10 miles. You know, I can't talk to a stranger. You don't do it. Mm -hmm. Okay, mm -hmm. so, that, but those are thoughts and they're words that you happen to be listening to and behaving in accordance with. So that's really what a limiting belief is. It's a thought usually translated into language that impacts our behavior and limits our behavior. Grace, is that your definition as well? Absolutely, and in the subconscious, we're not even aware of what our limiting mm -hmm. beliefs are. So mm -hmm. I'll give an example. There was a woman I helped overcome addiction to sugar. She thought she ate sugar because she liked sugar. She thought she ate sugar because her coworkers put out M&M bowls on their desk every day and she just didn't have the willpower to say no. So we go into the subconscious and we find that one of her happiest childhood memories is her baking with her grandmother mm -hmm. because she had a very tumultuous upbringing. Mm -hmm. And so even though from a resource perspective, her subconscious was saying, when you need to feel love, like the love of your grandmother, which was the only unconditional love you received, and it's important for you to feel that way, we're going to link it to sugar. So every time you're feeling upset and sad, you're going to go grab for that sugar. It was a limiting belief because then she couldn't stop eating sugar. Uh -huh. When she was older, she had no control over it. And so by going into the subconscious, we could see, wow, she's got this limiting belief that sugar is love, is grandma. It's totally combobulated, and we got to separate these things and put sugars over here and here's why it's not good for you. Yeah. Grandma's here and here's why that love is so important. Yeah. And what I find is the three biggest limiting beliefs that are at the root of everything are lack of self-love, lack of self-worth, lack of self-confidence. And her inability to generate her own self-love meant she was constantly, even as adult, seeking that love of her grandmother. So once we got those three things in place, she didn't want the sugar anymore and there's been three years without it now. I, I am fascinated by this idea of our subconscious limiting beliefs and it reminds me of a story Dr. Judy told me in a series that was very similar to the one you just said. I want to toss that right now for our viewers. Take a look at this. So I had a patient who um, really had a huge distaste to one of the national food chains and mm. there wasn't really any reason for it other than, oh, I just don't like the food. I mean, he didn't really even necessarily connect that it was related to a trauma memory. And through some of our work together, eventually it comes out that that was where he learned that his parents were getting divorced. And so he didn't necessarily recall it even at the time. It was really through our work that he organically kind of came up with this, you know, after eight months of therapy. So then how did his life change once he realized where that strong reaction was coming from? Well, it's interesting because I think for him, he realized, oh, it's not really the restaurant, but it's like obviously the memory that's associated with that restaurant. And so for the first time in 10 years, he actually went to eat at that restaurant. And it was a really interesting experience. Like he was eating a burger and crying. Mm -hmm. I mean, he had like a really rough time there. Wow. People must have looked at him and was like, yeah. what's going on? Like right. you're like eating a burger and yeah. crying. Yeah. But um, after he allowed himself to sort of process that, there's now no necessarily negative reaction to it. I mean, it's not his favorite restaurant, but he'll eat there, it's not a big deal. Um, but it was just really interesting that it, all these years he had suppressed it and he had the surface level of like distaste for this place, but he didn't know why. Yeah. And then once he connected that memory, he was able to kind of face that. And then he was able to really move that off of a sort of physiological state of mind where whenever he gets near that restaurant, he just has a bad feeling.
I shot a series on acceptance and commitment therapy with mm -hmm. Dr. Judy, and mm -hmm. it seems like there's a lot of overlapping here with hypnotherapy. Right. What is ACT? So acceptance and commitment therapy is, you know, and I was talking to some folks earlier today, earlier today it's when existential therapy has a bit of a fling with cognitive yeah. behavioral therapy. <laughs> That's so you know, perfect. and I said it a bit dirtier with them. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I of mean, course. it's really it's 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 existential techniques, humanistic techniques, frankly, meet a cognitive behavioral, a little bit of mindfulness thrown mm. in. So you're taking in a lot of the stuff that we know are some of the most profound active ingredients in a lot of evidence-based therapies. Mm -hmm. I like a lot about acceptance and commitment therapy for the two the two parts of the acceptance and the taking action part. Mm. Okay, but the real winning part to me of acceptance and commitment uh, and commitment therapy is this idea that life is actually uncomfortable. Mm. It really is, and to get to a life that enacts your meaning, your purpose, your core philosophies, it ain't going to be easy. And it, and then what it allows you to do in therapy, and this is almost much more behavioral. So like I said, it takes in from a lot of theoretical schools. It begs the question of what are you moving away from and what are you moving towards? Ooh. What we do as human beings, unfortunately, is we move away from pain. Uh -huh. Now, at some level, that's adaptive, right? We'd never want to keep our hand on a burning pot. That's great. But we treat psychological pain like that burning pot. Right. And so what we then do is spend all our waking hours dodging pain. Don't we, though? And then there's no time left to really be in line, integrated with our core philosophy and values uh -huh. because we're spending all our time uh -huh. avoiding pain. Uh -huh. Right? Uh -huh. And that, so what happens is we give so much meaning to the pain and I can't be in the pain to which this model is saying, Accept the pain. And and again, you know my work, a lot of it is on narcissistic abuse. And for a, a lot of my clients who came from toxic family systems, the big day is when they accept, like, this is what you came from. And it's a bummer. And I know you wanted it to be a loving, happy family. It's not what you got. Okay? And that, though, does not define you. Right. You can accept this and then look at your life as the damn triumph that it is. Yeah, yeah. And so that's where the acceptance work then becomes part of this journey is hard. But if you are aligned with your core philosophy, who are you? Yeah. What are you about? Yeah. What do you stand for? That you will somehow be able to get yourself to that other side with that acceptance. And then another big part of the model is that mindfulness work, yes. is that ability to be in the moment and let those thoughts come at you and simply, or feelings come at you or sensations come at you and be with them. And so that combination of techniques of paying attention to what you're moving away from because you're wasting time there because then you're not moving toward your discomfort with pain, the acceptance of pain, mm -hmm. the, mindfulness, the mindfulness techniques, and then also the observing self. Looking at yourself from here, using language differently. And what acceptance and commitment therapy really gets at is this idea that language imprisons us. Mm -hmm. If I walk around saying, I am disorganized, I am, I, that means I am disorganized. Like mm -hmm. that's my identity. But even a little trick of the eye, trick of the word as it were, to say, I have the thought that I may be disorganized. There All of is. a sudden, it's not Romney has brown eyes. It's not Romney's disorganized. It's like, that enters the realm of possibility. I have the thought that Romney's taken on too many responsibilities. Oh, 
boop, there's another thought. So good. All of a sudden, just through a trick of language, do this with my clients all the time. Like, just say it with me once. And they're like, ooh. And it was just words. It's just it was words. just words. And instead of those words controlling yeah. you, you are now That's controlling it. the words. That's it. Uh, last night, I was having a real big moment, my own personal crisis. And I went, I went back to that mm -hmm. and I said, I'm having the thought that mm -hmm. blah, 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 mm -hmm. blah, blah. And it took me a little bit out mm -hmm. so I could see what was going on, mm -hmm. feel what was going on. And so I could process it mm -hmm. in, a, in a way that felt more healthy. Yeah. Um, Grace, when people hear about hypnotherapy and they say, <laughs> no, thank you. I'll, I'll take some crystals to go as well. No, I'm not doing any of that stuff. It's nonsense. It doesn't work. Mm -hmm. What do you say to them? I say, well, here's the thing, and this is what I tell my students, because we actually created our own certification school for hypnotherapy to make sure that we do up the standards mm -hmm. for practicing members of this field. And I say to my students, we're not evangelists, okay? It's not our job to go out and convert people into people who want to do hypnotherapy. It is our job to show up and be as professional as possible and help people mm -hmm. who are seeking help. And because people come to hypnosis as a last resort, they eventually find us if something mm. else didn't work along the way. Mm -hmm. But there's also so much wonderful research coming out. So, mm -hmm. for example, there was a study from Stanford that found that women with metastatic breast cancer, the group that did hypnotherapy had 50% less pain during their treatment mm, than the control group. But at a 10-year follow-up of the same group of women, those who had done hypnotherapy had twice the survival rate. And this is out of Stanford. And another study from Harvard Medical School showed that those who did hypnotherapy as compared to the control group, when they had an ankle fracture at six and a half weeks, they were showing eight and a half weeks of healing. So bones were healing 40% faster. But were they doing hypnotherapy for that specific Visualizing thing? Visualizing the healing of their mm -hmm. ankle fracture. Okay. 40% okay. faster. And there's just so many studies. There's no, there's no convincing. You either want to do it uh -huh. and you look at the empirical data of this is absolutely effective and can help you uh -huh. or you don't. And if you don't, there's no convincing you and that's not my job. What I, I like that a lot. What about uh, things like you mentioned smoking and weight yeah. loss? How does hypnotherapy affect those? Well, what's interesting is you can be working on anything. And I think that's why people have some trouble with it. It kind of sounds like snake oil, right? How could something that helps you with weight loss also help you with nail biting, also help you with not screaming at your kids at night? Mm -hmm. And I understand that confusion, but here's how it works. In the subconscious mind, it stores all of your habits, all of your beliefs and all of your emotional responses. It also holds your digestion, right? These automatic bodily functions. So for example, when you get nervous because you're about to go on stage and speak and all of a sudden you have a tummy ache, these are subconscious things that are happening, but they are linked. Mm. So when you access the subconscious mind by entering into that relaxed theta state, what we do is something called reframing. So let's say with smoking, or there's, there's two main things that we do. There's a lot of them, but the two main ones are reframing or parts therapy. So with smoking, you go in and you talk to the smoker, the part that is smoking, because there's a part that doesn't want to smoke. I don't understand. Smoke. You mean, what do you mean? I go, I go into a hypno state and then I talk to the part of myself that is a smoker. Yeah. Okay, so okay. basically when you're in that meditative state, it becomes like a negotiation and the hypnotherapist would say, I'd like to speak to the part of you that is the smoker. Mm. And in the same way that you just had that trick of language where you mm -hmm. said, I'm having the thought that, and mm -hmm. it created separation. Mm -hmm. yep. This does the same thing. You're not a smoker. Right. There's a part of you that is the smoker. Mm -hmm. Let's talk that. to it. And I then you can that. understand why the part mm -hmm. thinks 
everything the subconscious does is because it thinks it's keeping you safe. Its job is to keep you alive. But oftentimes what that means is keeping you small hmm. and keeping you doing the same things you've always done, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So if you've always been smoking and you're alive and breathing, the part that is yeah. the smoker thinks you're doing great, mm-hmm. right? It's accomplishing its goal. So you get into the subconscious and you say to the smoker, actually smoking is hurting me X, Y, Z in all of these different ways. I'd like to do this instead. And it actually is a negotiation and you have to replace the old habit with something new. You can't just give up smoking because then the subconscious will come up with another way to keep you safe that you might not want. So for example, you replace smoking with sipping water mm-hmm. because if you don't, it will probably replace smoking with eating food. Mm -hmm. That Mm hand-to-mouth thing will just happen naturally, right? Mm -hmm. So you replace it with something that serves you. With weight loss, this is a whole wonderful field, and I've got a book coming out on this soon too, but primarily the two main issues that we're facing are the fact that serotonin is released when you eat fatty, salty, sugary foods. And so when you're sad, feeling depressed, or anxious, the body wants to keep you safe by releasing Mm -hmm. these feel-good hormones into your body. So that's one thing. The other thing is the perceived rewards that you receive from eating the way you've always been eating. So here's an example. Studies have found that as many as 80% of obese women were sexually abused as children. So there's a subconscious belief that the bigger I am physically, the more safe I am because the more invisible I become to predators. So the perceived reward of eating for this person is so high, it keeps them safe, it keeps them alive, that there's no just do a keto diet that's going to help this person. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you have to access the subconscious and find out what does the overeater believe is the perceived reward of eating in this way, and then you have to negotiate a new way of being. Right. Now, yeah. that makes a lot of logical sense mm-hmm. to me. Mm-hmm. As a doctor and as a psychology expert, mm-hmm. how do you respond to that? So I think that, you know, in some ways, it, it completely is in line with any of us who do health behavior change research, right? So anybody who is eating well past the point of being fully satisfied, anyone who is knowingly engaged, there's not a, engaging in unhealthy behavior. There is not a single person on this planet who doesn't know smoking is unhealthy. Right. The messages have just been too pervasive, right? It's not like it was 50, 60 years ago. We're like, oh, is this right. really dangerous? Everybody knows. Mm-hmm. So people are knowingly doing something that's harmful or not doing something for its biological reason. So it's sort of like it all becomes, you know, we call it sort of the backstory issue. What contextually has happened? What are the associations with food? You know, my first book was on emotional right. eating. Yeah, you are and why so, you eat. Exactly. And that everybody... Everybody, as I, as I put it, has a dinner table story. Mm-hmm. It is where most of the pathology of a family unfolded. Whether you ate alone, whether you ate and got screamed at, mm-hmm. whether you watched your mother restrict food, mm-hmm. whether you got called fat, mm-hmm. you know, whatever it was, that dining table, that dinner table, eating table, kitchen, whatever you want to call it, is a very loaded place and set the tone. So it's unearthing that back story, which is such a part of most therapists. I say most because the behaviorists are just going to take it straight up without the historical piece. But for the rest of us, 
we do dig deep and look at the meanings of things. So that's what this feels like to me. Just it's a different kind of a frame than I think we would call it. That those of us who do more sort of traditional talk therapies, as mm -hmm. it were, that it is that we may not call it going into the subconscious, mm -hmm. but I view all therapists of every stripe to really be archaeologists. Yes. Here's your psyche, yes. and let's start digging. And then before you know it, we get to the pottery shards, and we get to all this other stuff, and we lay it out, and I'm like, what is this? Yes. And then we and then we start putting it together. Oh, it's an old ancient dish right and in your case it's your ancient hurt I love that Beautiful I'll stuff. give a quick example so my smoker part thought it was keeping me safe because it believed I had no conscious awareness of this but it believed that when I would smoke walking down the street in New York City that it made me less approachable <laughs> to cat callers and men so its perceived reward was that it was keeping me safe, not mm -hmm. that it was destroying mm -hmm. my lungs and my pocketbook yes. and yes. my fingers mm -hmm. so until we had that discussion it actually thought it was helping me. And again, mm -hmm. no conscious awareness of this. I have a lot of questions for the two of you. This <laughs> is so freaking good. It's so fun to have a hypnotherapist on one end, a clinical psychologist on the other. We're going to get to all those questions and more in our next session.